Thank you. Well, if you have your Bible, can I encourage you to open it up to 1 John? And we want to try and think about this passage together. Uh, have you ever watched Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You got that in Scotland? Okay, I know in Northern Ireland we're a wee bit backward, but uh, even we got TVs over there. Um, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was one of my grandparents' favourite TV programmes. And they would talk about millionaire. They didn't who wants to be, they just talked about millionaire. And I remember my granddad, whenever Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was on, he was on the edge of his seat and I loved watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It was with Chris Tarrant, you know the format. You had, I can't remember how many questions, I think it would be like 15 questions and the money doubled all the way up until it was the million pound question. You were asked the question, you were given four answers and there was only one right answer and then throughout the quiz you had three lifelines. I think, is it Jeremy Clarkson is back on TV? Jeremy Clarkson is, is now in Chris Tarrant's position. And what made Who Wants to Be a Millionaire so effective and so gripping almost, I think, was those lifelines. Remember the lifelines? You could ask the audience and you were hoping that they weren't dopes. Um, then you're going 50-50 um, and they would take away um, half the answers. And then you're phoning a friend and again, fingers crossed, not a dope. Um, and you were hoping that you would be able to get to the million pounds. And you remember what Tarrant was like? I'm not sure um, what Jeremy Clarkson's like, but he would ask the question and then he would say, are you sure? And at that moment you knew you'd be thinking, well, I, I was sure until you said that. And then he would say, is that, is that your final answer? And then more doubt creeps into your mind. Is, is, that, is that what I thought? And then I'll say, is that your final, final answer? And all the time he's kind of, you know, building it up. Why is he built, why does he keep asking that question? To make you more sure? No, the exact opposite. To make you less sure. So you're wondering the whole time, well, is, is that the right answer? I, I don't know if you're anything like me. Even as I was coming here this morning, and was singing, did, did I remember a Bible? Did I, did I put a sermon in my folder? Did I remember the children's address? Did I even have the address of this church? Where am I going? How far away is this church? Did I get the right church? I mean, if it's an hour away, I'm dead meat now because I've only got like 10 minutes to get. You know, and all these, or maybe you leave, leave the house even tonight and you're going, did, did we turn off the oven? Is the gas still on? Um, if this was a morning service, I'm sure somebody was thinking, did we, did we turn on the oven? Did we lock the door? Is the car locked? Where is the car? Did I need a ticket? You know, all those things. And then you doubt yourself and you start thinking to yourself, well, did I really do that? Or maybe, maybe I didn't. And there can be this, I don't want to say wonderful lack of assurance, but this uncertainty. And we live in a world of uncertainty, don't we? We live in a world where... We don't know what's going to happen. Um, let's just pick a few random subjects. Maybe the most important, what's going to happen Man United next year? I mean, there's a great deal of uncertainty. Where are they going to be? Okay, well, let's be a little bit more serious. What about politics? What about things in six months' time? Is there going to be another referendum in Scotland? Is there going to be another referendum in the United Kingdom? Are we going to be in Europe or out of Europe? It's like a hokey pokey sometimes. What about internationally? Is there going to be a, a relationship with China between America or North Korea? How are things going to pan out? And in our world, there's so much uncertainty. Maybe you grew up in a generation of certainty. Maybe you said, look, 
Well, I leave school, I'm going to go to do the same job as my father, because my grandfather did that job, and that's the job for life. I can start that job, I'll be 50 years in that job, I'll retire with this much pension, I'll live in this area, and at this point in my life, I'll live in that area, and the house price will cost that. And I'll get married, and that'll be it for life, and I'll have 2.4 children, and they'll grow up to this stage in life, and then they'll do this, and then they'll end up here. And that's the kind of way maybe a previous generation thought about things. But we live in a time where there's so much uncertainty. I remember really clearly, um, in Northern Ireland we have GCSEs, you have GCSEs in Scotland, I think maybe called something different, but it's a fifth year examination. And I remember my GCSE history teacher said to his boys, boys, there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. <laughs> and I'm not sure if he was trying to dishearten us at that stage, but it stuck in my mind. There are only two certainties in life. And then we come to John. We come to this letter that John's fired off. And John must have been thinking a lot about certainty. When I became a Christian, I said this this morning, I was, I was 10 years of age. And I knew the gospel, uh, like your children at the front, if I was asked a question, hand straight up. I know the answer to this question. And I became a Christian, or I asked the Lord into my heart, but I would say honestly for the next five years I was never I was never honestly sure if I was a Christian. Anytime somebody had a like a, a mission to missions over here, like that would be a week of meetings, and I would go along to it or be sent along to it. And the minister at some point or the preacher at some point would say, If you want to trust the Lord Jesus prayer, pray this prayer after me. And I would pray the prayer. I must have prayed that little prayer. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, come in to stay, come in today. I must have prayed that prayer about a thousand times. Or they would give out the one of those wee booklets, you know, like a journey into life at the door, and I'd be along at a youth meeting or a rally, and they would say at the end, if anybody wants this, just ask. I asked for it. I remember many times going to the bunk bed at home and, and opening it up and reading it and saying the prayer at the back, and I was, I was never sure. And now looking back, it seems weird to me, but I, I wonder, can you relate to that? And John, well, John's writing to... Christians. He's around a Christian church and John, this is the disciple John. Whenever he met Jesus, he was a young man. He was probably in his late teens, early 20s. And now he's an old man. Because Jesus, well, he was with Jesus probably 60 years ago. So this is a guy who's at least in his 80s. But even as he's in his 80s, this is a guy who's got intensity. Now, I don't know what the free church is like in Scotland. Imagine you're pretty much like a Presbyterian church. Kind of dur, right? Do you know that word dur? You know, we don't get too excited. Anybody puts up the hand, it's for a cup of tea. You with me? You know, a Presbyterians, Presbyterians and Ulster don't smile. Smiling's a sign of weakness. You know, stony face near the back. You know, that's, that's what we're like. You know, we, we don't want to give too much away. And we think to ourselves, well, look, this joy, am I... Where's it going to be? Well, John had an intensity. I'm not saying he was up and down, skipping up the aisles. He could have been dirt to look at. But there was definitely something going on in his life here. Because even after 60 years of following Jesus, he had an intensity. These first four verses for us, the first four verses of this chapter we're looking at tonight, that's just one sentence. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but if you are a Greek scholar, and you look at this verse in the original language, or this sentence in the original language, you say to yourself, this is just a really terrible sentence. It's just all over the place. 
But that's not because John was confused or he'd failed his Greek grammar test. That's because he just couldn't get it out quick enough. That's because there was this intensity. They wanted to say something and they wanted to be, have an impact. It just flowed out of him. So whether he was running up and down the aisles carrying a flag or not, this isn't a guy who after 60 years hasn't lost his joy in knowing Jesus. And John's emphasis, well John's emphasis after 60 years is on having certainty. John's emphasis to these Christians is on having assurance. We know at Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 18 it's in this assurance it's an important thing. And I'm not, I'm not winging that. I'm not making that up. If you flick over a couple of pages, chapter 5, 1 John 5, verse 13, he tells us why he's writing this book. He tells you and me. I don't know what you think about preaching. Sometimes you maybe think, well, look, the preacher's twisting this. He's kind of putting his slant on this. He's got an angle he's aiming for, and he's going to twist this for me. I'm not. 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know. That you may know something. That you might not leave here tonight thinking, well, that young fellow from Northern Ireland who had a funny accent and spoke quick said it. No. But that you may know something. You may know something. What are you to know? You can know that you've eternal life. You can know that. You can have assurance of that. Young people, I know I had to try and do a sermon preview, but that's something that you can know. Whether you be 8 years of age or 80 years of age, you can know that tonight. You can walk out the door and say, I know something. Now, there's two ways of thinking about certainty. We can say, here's the two ways, the objective and the subjective, right? The objective means, is this true? Is this objectively true? Did this really happen? Did Jesus really come? Did he really die? Did he really rise from the grave again? I mean, is this historical? Is this evidential? Is, is there anything to back this up? Did this happen? And we can think about certainty in that regard. Is it just your opinion? Is this your emotion? Or did it, is it real? There's another way we can think about certainty. We can think about it subjectively. Not just, is it true? Did it happen? But did it happen to me? Is this true in my life? Did I, really, did I really talk to God? Did he really hear me? Did he really forgive me? Does he, know about, does he know about my closet? Does he know the skeletons I have and you're telling me that I can know he forgave me? And can I really be sure of that? Surely, surely that's a sin to be you know, presumptuous like that. Well, John speaks this about it. And it's really difficult to be Confident, if you don't know. It's really hard to put your hand up in class and answer a question if you don't know the answer or you're not sure. I, I have a niece and I think she'd put up her hand for any question to be asked. Did you even have a clue what the answer is? But she's one of them wee girls, her hand goes up. She'll say whatever she thinks. And maybe you're like that. Maybe in your place of work you would say, like, I, I'm not going to stick my head above the power, but they'll ask me questions and I don't know the answers. They're going to ask me things and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I would say. And is this true? And did this really happen to me? Well, John here tonight, he wants to encourage you. He wants to build genuine Christian assurance. He wants to come alongside you. This guy in his 80s, and he says, I want to speak to you so that you may know. Or maybe, 
Or maybe you say, well, I do know. I'm 100% sure. Part of my job back in Northern Ireland as a minister is we had to go around people's houses. I loved it. Once he realised I wasn't selling double glazed, it was, come on in. Sometimes I'd be talking to people and they would say things like, young fella, I hear you, but I wish you would stop talking because I know a few things. And I have my beliefs and you can think whatever you want, but you're not going to change me. Now that's really interesting. But if you're saying one thing and I'm saying the exact opposite, one of us is going to be right and one of us is going to be wrong. Now I didn't put it in those terms, but they're really sure. And there's a type of an assurance that John says, well, I'm going to topple that. There's a type of assurance that John says, I want to build up. And there's a type of false assurance that John says, well, you're going to have to lose that. So let's think about those things tonight. Is this actually true? And has this actually happened in my life? And in these first four verses, John's focus is in where this certainty or where this assurance comes from. And I'm going to, here's the three points. I'm sorry, three again tonight. Here's the three things I think he's trying to say in these four verses. Where is this certainty or where does this assurance come from? Here's the first one. Where does certainty or where does assurance come from according to John? Well, he wants to change our perspective and he wants to give us an eternal perspective. Young people, if you're taking notes, and I'll be really impressed if you are, you can write down eternal perspective. And if you can spell those words correctly, you're doing better than I can because I think I've spelled them wrong in my notes. Eternal perspective. Here we go. Look at it there with me. Verse 1. How does John begin? Well, no pun intended, that which is from the beginning. Now I have a confession to make. I find John frustrating. I find John a little bit unsettling. I like Paul. Paul. Paul's like a gunslinger. He pulls his pistol and he fires a shot and he's dead cert. When he says one thing, he means one thing. But John, John says one thing and he could mean about six things. Like he says here, that, okay? Very first word in ESV, that. Well, what's the that? What does he mean that? Is he talking about God? Is he talking about the gospel? I mean, he could be talking about God because Genesis 1 verse 1, how does it begin the Bible? Bashik bara Elohim, in the beginning God. Maybe he's referring back to that. Maybe he's referring back to Genesis 1 verse 1, God. But then how does John begin his gospel? In the beginning was the word. So maybe that that is, my head's melted here. <laughs> I know it's a Sunday night, it's warm outside, and you're probably in the park in the afternoon, you're going to doze off now, but stick with me here. Maybe John's singing about Genesis 1, maybe he's singing about John 1. Or maybe he's singing about the church. Maybe when he says that which is from the beginning, he's talking about the church. Well, the frustrating thing about John is I think he says one thing and means three things. I think John's all those things in mind. I think John wants us to think about God and the gospel and the church. And John wants to tell us they all started in eternity. The message we preach wasn't made up last week. It's an eternal message. God didn't think plan A hasn't worked. Let's go for plan B. It wasn't like somebody came up with God. He's always been the church the church wasn't in the manifesto change. It was always in God's mind. And John's pointing us to that. You know, it's like a political party. They change their manifesto because they're thinking to themselves, what's going to sell? What's going to get us votes? And this year, this will get us votes. And next year, that will get us votes. And some of you in older generation, you know that when you listen to a party leader, if they'd said some of the things they say now 30 years ago, they would never have got elected. But things change. 
Well, John's directing our attention here and saying, well, the great acts of God, the gospel, the church, is from eternity. It's eternal. Uh, last September, I had the opportunity to go to see the Grand Canyon. You've heard of the Grand Canyon? Big hole in the ground. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's just me, but I'm one of those people who I think I'm reasonably hard to impress. And I was leading this tour group to the Grand Canyon, and the tour guide was taking me first. Everybody else stayed in the coach, and he was going to show me the way. And he's taking me to this, the Grand Canyon. It's like all um, kind of bushes and trees. You can't see anything. And he's going, Andrew, this is going to, this is going to knock your socks off. Andrew, this is going to be a wow moment. This is, on, this is a 10 on the scale. Okay, that's my American accent, by the way. This, this is going to knock your socks off. And I'm thinking, it's a big hole in the ground. I mean, I've been to the Giants Causeway. How impressive can this be? <laughs> You know, that's not going to blow me away. And then you get there and you're like, this is really worth seeing. This actually is worth seeing. This is really, this is incredible. I think I'm hardly impressed. Well, the Grand Canyon was one of those moments where you go, wow. This, 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 is, this is really something. And your perspective changes. You know, it's kind of being like, it's just a hole in the ground. You're like, Whoa. And John wants to do something like that. John wants us to get this passage. And John doesn't want you to think, okay, eternity, great. He wants you to think about, you've been brought into something. You've been, you know someone who's eternal. Like your life is, I don't know, this long or this long. But you know God who's bringing you to something this big. You're trusting in the gospel message. That wasn't made up last week. That's, that's been from the beginning. You're part of the church. That's eternal. This is not a small thing. This is not an insignificant thing. That's what John's talking about. He says in the book of Revelation, in Jesus' birth, life, and death, and resurrection, ascension, this is an eternal gospel. I mean, we live, we live in an age, you maybe spoke to your children or your grandchildren and said, going to church, you should think of coming. And they'll say something to you like, church out of date. Church old-fashioned. Nobody believes that jazz now. Well, John would say, this isn't 2019 beliefs or 1950s beliefs. This is eternal. This is not just an Arden generation. This is the gospel of God. This doesn't go up. We don't go up and down depending on what the latest craze is. John's speaking to us and says, the God of the Bible and his gospel is not particular to an era, a generation, a place, and a time. It's every generation, and it's all time. And he wants you to have certainty, because this is eternal. And then the point two. Not only eternal perspective, but John's going to take a particular position here. He's going to take the historical position. Um, I wonder, do you know this hymn, written by Alfred Ackley in 1887? You ask me how I know he lives. He lives. He lives within my heart. You ask me how. I'm not going to sing. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Well, we're singing in that hymn about the inner testament of the Holy Spirit. How do you know you're a Christian? He lives within my heart. And we believe that. 100%. The inner testament of the Holy Spirit. That there's something supernatural happens. But it's really difficult to give that answer when it comes to university guerrilla Christian. 
You could speak to a Muslim or a Hindu and you can say, how do you know you're right? And they'll say, well, I know I have this inner testimony. They'll say the same thing to you. But you know what John would say? John would say, I'm one John. He would say, well, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not going to make any apology. I'm not going to clear my throat and blow my nose and say, I'm terribly sorry I have to say this. John would say, you want me to tell you how I know? You want me to tell you how I'm certain? Because it happened in history. That's how I know. John would say, okay, well, you may have a fuzzy feeling. Or you may not have a fuzzy feeling. But John would say, you want me to tell you how you know? Because if you'd been born soon enough, you would have met God. I mean, just look what he says in verse 1. He says, that which is from the beginning, and then he continues, which we have heard. I heard him. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. They're, they're, they're involved in the senses. That's like a Psalm 34 ex- experience. I have seen him. I have heard him. I have touched him. You're asking me how I know Jesus was real. John says, I was there. I, I, I saw this guy. I saw the God man. And it's interesting the words that John uses here. The word for see could be blato for you just see plainly or theoero, to see scripture. But the word that John uses here is oreo, see with understanding. I saw him and I understood. Things fell into place. This is a language of the senses. And this is a language that can't be repeated. You've, you've never seen Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to be there. You had to sense him and see him and hear him. That's why Paul was an apostle and Damascus wrote, he heard him. And John says here, you ask me how I know he lives? I was there, 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 preached a sermon. I was with Thomas when he put his hand on his side. I was there when he was walking on water. I, this Jesus that I'm telling you about 60 years later, this happened in history. John could say, well, you may have your beliefs. I mean, some things the Bible you like or some things you don't like. You can try and live your life a particular way. You can ignore the gospel. You can suppress the gospel. But John would say to you, there's one thing that you cannot do. And you cannot say it didn't happen. You may have your own beliefs, but you've got to be upfront and honest enough to say that they're not beliefs that are based in history. Because I was there with, when Jesus was there. Maybe you say, well, I go to church. I'm a good person. Well, John says... I was there when Jesus was there and I want you to understand this. And then he goes into this kind of courtroom language. He says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And then he uses this word and testify to it and proclaim it to you. John says, okay, you want to come into court? You want to come into court? Well, I'm going to tell you as a witness what happened. You ask me how I know how he lives? Because I was there in a song. Eternity, history, here's the third thing. Where does this certainty come from? Well, John says it comes because there's not just an eternal perspective or historical position, but an authoritative partnership. Something happened. Um, Before I went to theological college, I used to work in a solicitor's. You may not think too much of solicitors. I once heard a joke, what do you do when you run over a solicitor? Reverse. Um, So no offense if you're a solicitor. I used to work in the office. 
And one of the things that I found out in a solicitor's office really quickly is that people fall out. Families can fall out spectacularly. Business partners can go their separate ways and it gets messy. Churches can divide. You'd be amazed at how many unsigned letters we got. Even denominations can split. I've been asking where the Free Church of Scotland come from. I was told 1843 left the Church of Scotland. And John would say to us, well, you're not in theological Switzerland. This doesn't leave you untouched. That there are things that you may fall out about. Maybe you would say, well, we disagree about the songs that we sing. Maybe you disagree about PowerPoint. Maybe you disagree about dress code. Maybe the young people, there's a buzzword, it's called non-denominational. What church do you go to? A non-denominational church. Because we're kind of all-inclusive. The liberal agenda is the only thing that you should be is non-judgmental. You shouldn't exclude anybody apart from a Christian. You'd exclude them because they have a different opinion than you. That's the irony, isn't it? You know, tolerate everybody apart from those who don't tolerate. Well, John speaks about that. And he speaks about division in the church. And John asks a question that might make your blood run cold. John says, what amounts to legitimate division? Now you're maybe thinking, Andrew, sunshine, you've got the wrong letter. Do you remember last year whenever Harry married Meghan? I don't know if you're royalist in this part of Scotland, but Harry married Meghan. And it was Bishop Michael Curry who, who did the service. Okay, the, the guy from America. And he preached this sermon that the newspapers loved. I mean, people were loving this sermon. And it was a sermon on the power of love. You know, and Bishop Michael Curry was stirring people up and he said things like, you know, the greatest need in this world is love. And I actually quote it from 1 John. Let us love one another because God is love. And he went, he went, you know, he just put a horse and cart through this love. Well, in the very same letter that talks a lot about love, John talks a lot about division. Now that might make your heart run cold. And you might be unimpressed. But John uses language here that divides. Just notice that, verses 1, verse 2, and verse 3. What does he talk about? He says, we and you. Verse 2, we and you. Verse 3, we and you. There's a way of speaking that can blur distinctions, but John's not into that. John's not into blurring distinctions. John... John wants to speak. He's speaking about eternity and history. And what's his purpose in speaking about this? He says in verse 2, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. And then we're expecting a purpose clause. Okay, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've proclaimed it to you. And what's going to be the outcome of that? John saw Jesus, he met Jesus, he heard Jesus. He's telling us about it, the courtroom language. Okay, what's going to be the result? And we're thinking, I'm thinking, okay, now he's going to tell us that we may know we have eternal life. Let's get to the good stuff. But that's not what John says. John says... I'm going to tell you about the gospel in eternity and the church in eternity. I'm going to speak to you about history so that you too may have. Look at the words right there, verse 3. So that you may have fellowship with us. 
Now, don't throw a hymn book at me, but this doesn't sound very Protestant. <laughs> this doesn't sound like the Reformation. This sounds woolly. You're telling me that John has seen and heard and proclaimed it so it's about fellowship? What is John talking about? He should have said fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, shouldn't he? He should have said fellowship with God, but he doesn't say fellowship with God. He says fellowship with us, fellowship with me. And why is he saying that? That's our question. Why is John telling these believers, if you want to have certainty, you're going to stand eternity, you've got to stand history, but you're also going to have to have a partnership, an authoritative partnership with me. That's what John says. Now, why is he saying that? Well, I think what John is telling us here is we cannot have independent, direct access to God. We've got to go through someone. Now, hold on. Who is that someone? Well, it's the apostles. You may believe something and you may say, this is what I'm holding to. But John says, no, 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 no. John says, if you want to go to God, you've got to come through us because we're going to tell you God's message. You can't just make your own way to God. We're bringing you the apostolic understanding of how you may go to God. You may think, well, look, I can go to God by being a good person and being nice to you know, people who are nice to me and not being nice to people who are not nice to me. But John says, that ain't the gospel. If you want to know the gospel, we're telling you the gospel because we met Jesus. We heard from Jesus. We're telling you the message. And if you want to know God, this is the message. We're bringing it to you. You're not going your own way. This is not a free this is not a snowball fight. John is saying, if you want to have fellowship with God, if you want to know God, you're going to have fellowship with us. You're going to have this fellowship. This fellowship of those who were there. That's what John's talking about here. John is saying that you cannot have this independent fellowship with God that bypasses the, God, the apostles. You can't just say, well, look, I'm going to go my own way here. John says, no. If you want to have fellowship with God, then you're having fellowship with us. And so John would say, if you have genuine fellowship with the apostles, if you're on the same side as John and Peter and Paul, well then John's saying, well then you have genuine fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Maybe we would think, well look, this is kind of scary, isn't it? Well I think this is actually liberating. Because we don't have to manufacture fellowship. Where's the only place in the world where you're going to get loads of different people from every color, and race, and sexual orientation? Where's the only place where they would have fellowship? It's not the golf club. It's going to be in the church. Because what unites us, what brings us together, is this fellowship we have with the apostles. This authoritative fellowship, this partnership. I thought it was great at the end of your service where people hung around. I went to the door to shake hands. and Maybe it was just me. Nobody went to shake hands. You all wanted to stay here and fellowship with one another. And that's wonderful. But whether you walk out the door and say, look, I can't make it today. You have a fellowship here. And the fellowship is built on we're going in one direction. Some of you may be loud and some of you may be quiet, but there's a genuine fellowship. And the fellowship is with the apostles. This is where our strength is. This is where our focus is. This is how we build fellowship. Many different people, but looking to the, the one direction. 
And John would speak to us about this. And we also find this challenging. Because maybe we would say, well, look, that person doesn't have fellowship with me. Well, I don't know your heart. And I don't need to know your heart. But you need to know whether you fellowship with the apostles. And there's the awful possibility that many people, that many people have refused true fellowship with the Father and with the Son because, says John, they've refused fellowship with him, with this apostolic teaching, with this biblical message that's been passed down. And you know, this break of fellowship, John's not skipping up and down the aisle thinking this is great, there's division. He's in agony about this. And that's why he says in verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's why he's talking about fellowship. John doesn't want outsiders. He doesn't want people here paddling their own canoe. John says, your canoe's sinking. Get in this boat. This is the only one that's going to hold you up. This is the only one that's going to last. And John's in agony. He's, he's broken hearted here. That my joy may be complete. Maybe your husband's not yet a believer. I know if you're a believer that you're that your joy is not complete because he's not saved. Or maybe your wife's not a believer. Your children are not believers. Your grandchildren, your parents are not believers. And that's not a small thing to you. You don't go to bed at night saying, oh well. You're in agony about that. That's what John says here. John says, my joy is incomplete because they're not part of the fellowship. They're not part of the family. And John says, I want them to be part of the family. He says, I want them to know this joy. I want them to have the joy that I have and knowing this Jesus. And that's why he's writing this letter. John wants these people who are far, he wants them to have true fellowship with God. And so he speaks about we and you. See, for some people, the Christian experience is about trying harder. John says, you'll never, you'll never please God. Some people think the Christian is just a good person. He gets nothing, nothing wrong. Well, John says, You've messed up so many times. John says the Christian is someone who's been brought into fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. It's like a wedding, isn't it? After the wedding ceremony, you're either married or you're not. A friend was over in Glasgow. He was doing best man. And he was saying that the bride was 45 minutes late. He said after five minutes it was funny. After 10 minutes it was humorous. But after 45 minutes he thought she'd done a runner. But whenever she came in, he said <laughs> the groom just went, it's just relief. Because there's going to be a marriage. They're going to be joined together and have true fellowship. And John says, when it comes to knowing God, you will either know him and be joined to him or you'll not be joined to him. And John says, if you want to know true fellowship with God, have true fellowship with me. And you're going to have certainty. You don't have to walk out wondering, am I good enough? You can walk out thinking, I'm part of something eternal. This really happened. And John's told me about it. And I can have a certainty. Trust that helps you. Trust that encourages you. Maybe it's, I've said something tonight that it's made you think. 
Well, just as I said this morning, please, you can speak to me. Um, I, I would love to listen to you. Or speak to Ivy, your minister. Um, I know that he'd only be too happy to do it. There's elders here. I've been speaking to some of them. Uh, you know one another. If something's in your mind, it's great to come to church. I love coming to church. But we're here not to put in an hour. We're here because of our great God. And maybe he's been speaking to you really helpfully through the word tonight. Well, you need to talk to him. But if it might help you to talk to somebody else, then you do that. Let's just buy our heads. Let's pray together.